Welcome to the Heart-Centered Therapist Podcast, the podcast created for you, the therapist who leads with your heart and loves serving your clients. I'm Cindy Gozanski, your host. I know that being a heart-centered therapist is immensely rewarding and powerful and intensely challenging and difficult. We're on this journey together. My mission is to help you continue loving your work as a therapist, surviving being a therapist, and feeling more connected as a therapist. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Heart-Centered Therapist podcast. I'm so glad you're here today. I'm Cindy Gozanski, your host, and it's my great pleasure to bring this exciting conversation My guest is Michelle Mosley. She is a licensed clinical mental health counselor in North Carolina. And today we are going to talk about what it means to be a heart-centered therapist, especially in the work that she does working with religious trauma and spiritual wounds. So let me tell you a little about Michelle. She came into mental health counseling as a second career and has experience working in college counseling centers community mental health agencies, and private practice settings. She currently provides therapy via telehealth to folks located throughout North Carolina in her private practice, and her specialties include body image concerns and working with survivors of religious trauma or spiritual abuse. Michelle also frequently works with clients who are experiencing anxiety, grief, or life transitions and enjoys working with other therapists. I'm so happy you're here, Michelle. We have tried to put this on for months. Both of us have been sick off and on, and now we're doing it. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that we're finally able to um, have this conversation after so many months of weeks and months of sickness. Yes. Well, we are a persistent bunch, we therapists. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. And I think it's so relevant for therapists around spirituality, trauma, and working from our hearts. It's just like all connected. So let's start by like, what does being a heart centered therapist mean to you? Yeah. Um, I really think that our heart kind of, to me, that means our core. Um, I know some people would use maybe like your soul or like your central self. And so I think really to be an effective therapist, you have to bring your heart into things. Like your heart is that part of you that connects with other people and can kind of get through the, the surface stuff into deep conversations and, and really getting to know other folks, whether that's personally or professionally. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. The heart really is the core. And when we're working from that place, like you said, it it goes beyond the surface. That's when the real intimacy happens. Um, You know, for us, it's in the therapy room. It can also be in other places. Mm -hmm. Um, So how did, how did you get into your specialty like maybe let's start I always love to know your journey your personal professional journey (laughs) into becoming a therapist with this unique specialty of religious trauma and spiritual wounds yeah I'm happy happy to share a little bit about my own journey as you mentioned I came into 
working as a mental health therapist as a second career. I spent probably about 15 to 16 years total working in different aspects of ministry. For me in particular, it was Christian ministry. Some of that was volunteer and about a decade of that was vocationally. And I had some of my own experiences with spiritual abuse and religious trauma. I think that a lot of therapists, our niches or our specialties kind of find us. Based I on love some, that. Yeah, right. Based on some of the experiences we've had and maybe some of the work we've done in therapy around our own stuff. And so as I was exiting out of that vocational ministry role and kind of doing some of my own work around some of the experiences that I had had um, and also thinking about some of the things that I really had enjoyed and found fulfilling in that role, such as I worked with young adults. And so such as being able to talk with them and have those deep conversations and help them kind of work through some of the stuff that was going on in their lives. I realized that I could be even better trained to do that if I were to pursue a a career in counseling. So made the decision to go back to grad school. At that time, I had no idea really that I would specialize in working with body image or with religious trauma. And that's oh, no idea then. Yeah, that's just kind of developed over my time in practice and just realizing like um, the clients that I really work well with, the folks that seem to get the most out of our work together. And so, like I said, my specialties kind of found me. That's that's classic. Your specialties found you and, mm-hmm. and it evolves along the way. That's great. So your specialties found you, and then you eventually, I know you have a very successful private practice, but you eventually kind of morphed into the religious trauma world. And here we are talking about religious trauma. Um, before we go any further, could you share a definition or like, what what is it? Because I think this is so unique and not everybody understands religious trauma. That is very true. Thanks for asking that. So I really think of trauma in in general, not as necessarily an event that happens, but more about how our nervous system responds to it. So trauma can be something that happens too fast, is too much, is too soon, something that overwhelms our nervous system. Religious trauma is when that occurs in some type of religious or spiritual setting. So not only is your nervous system overwhelmed, but often there's also dynamic or peace related to like eternity, your spiritual beliefs, kind of that core part of your being um, that is a part of it as well. And how would you even approach this with a client? I mean, I'm sure not everybody is just going to volunteer that this happened to them. Are, you know, are there, are there certain ways I don't want to make it so clinical, like how do you assess for religious trauma? But, you know, like what, what would we ask a client? Yeah, um, I kind of, even with folks that, that don't come in for religious trauma, I do have quite a few folks that do that just because of that I market that as a specialty. But with anybody, when I'm doing that initial assessment, you know, one of my initial questions is asking about, you know, are there any type of beliefs or groups that are important to you? That could be something like a church or a hobby or traditions, just to kind of get some information around that. 
And then asking, you know, what was your experience with that? Not necessarily digging for religious trauma, but being aware that, okay, if they start describing something that sounds like, hmm, that could have been an unhealthy dynamic, or it sounds like that really impacted you, just to be aware of that and to open the door that, hey, spiritual things are something that we can talk about, and that's not something that we have to talk about. It's so important. And I really hope for my listener, you know, what Michelle just said is so important. Look for that unhealthy dynamic, right? We're talking about religious trauma. It could be something else, but to take the the edge off and make it okay to talk about something that might feel taboo to the client, right? So what might be an unhealthy dynamic? And perhaps it was in the realm of their religious upbringing, education, traditions, all of that. And sometimes the word trauma doesn't fit for folks. Like if mm-hmm. you were to jump to saying religious trauma, that is that feels like, no, I, I wasn't traumatized. I didn't experience trauma. So I also approach that very kind of tenderly. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it sounds like that was a painful experience. If the way they're talking sounds like they may be having some trauma responses, then I might say, you know, I feel like some people might describe this as trauma. Like, do you feel like that could fit for you? Because I don't make the judgment of whether your nervous system experienced something as traumatizing or not. Uh, I know in my own experience, it was extremely helpful when my therapist kind of broached the subject of trauma and said, sounds like that some of the responses you're having are trauma responses and that really fit for me mm-hmm. but I also know for some folks that is that is not the description that fits for them and so it's not so much about the words as honoring the experience and helping folks heal it just strikes me right like how much you do work from the heart you know even just using that word like tenderly you know kind of like tenderly approaching this and recognizing whether it's a fit or not. I mean, that's those are flexing your heart, heart-centered muscles right there. <laughs> yeah, I feel like um, the heart is so much a part of, of working with religious trauma. In my experience, such a big part of being able to do healing around wounds that you've experienced in a spiritual setting or a faith-based setting is having safety in the relationship, um, and in this case, relationship with the therapist. And so it may take quite a while for those kind of heart connections and for someone to feel safe to even look at those wounds. To look at it and to trust again and to trust that they're Mm -hmm. safe with you. Because even though we like to see ourselves as collaborative in the therapeutic relationship, we still occupy what could be a place of power, of privilege, of authority, and that might have done damage to the clients who experienced religious trauma in the past. That is a great point. Um, I think that is one of the most important things in working with survivors of religious trauma is making sure that all along the way, I am very aware of informed consent and that process and I'm making them very aware you know this is collaborative if there's ever a point where we're having a discussion that doesn't feel comfortable or I'm asking or challenging you to do something 
that doesn't feel comfortable, you have the freedom to say no. You have autonomy over your own body and mind. You're able to set boundaries in this relationship. Having autonomy over your body and mind, it, it, it's, it's so clarifying because often we hear our instinct of religious trauma is like, oh, it's got, we're, we've got to be talking about physical abuse or sexual trauma or something like that. But it's also can be mental and emotional trauma that happens. It can be that fracture of the safety, safe relationship you thought you had with your minister or your pastor mm-hmm. in that one-to-one capacity. And then they're taking a risk again with the therapist. So the informed consent you describe is critical. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I think it is so critical in working with with survivors. Mm-hmm. What well, what's an example of when a client might have experienced some kind of spiritual wounding that is is more in the mind category? Like what would be an example of that? Mm-hmm. Some common themes that I see that mm-hmm. kind of fit within kind of the mental emotional category are folks that are they're teaching the teaching within their faith system is that you give everything towards your higher power. So that could be your finances, like you're expected to give a certain amount um, of your finances, um, give all of your free time um, to maybe if you are a singer or an artist or a writer, that you do those things for your higher power, for your church, for your organization often without any pay, any kind of reciprocal relationship there. Um, So that's a common thing that folks just really feel used. Feeling Um, used, yeah. And and they feel dismissed if there comes a point where they're no longer able to give. Mm. Um, You know, maybe if they get sick and so they aren't able to give for a while, um, they feel forgotten and overlooked. And then another one that I see a lot is particularly with women who have experienced just a lot of patriarchy within religion, a lot of the ideas that males are the leaders, women are to be submissive at all times, that women are not able to use their talents. I've I've worked with lots of women who, you know, are very gifted in teaching or writing or things like that that are maybe more out front and giving guidance, and they haven't been allowed to use those talents because they're a woman. I um, see. So really that that powerlessness mm-hmm. of being a woman and being submissive and subservient and, and really secondary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think both of those things fit kind of mm-hmm. under um, an abuse of power. You know, they're not necessarily physical or sexual, but there is an abuse of power happening. I think sometimes the person in power, who is often a man, recognizes what they're doing. And I think sometimes they don't recognize they're they're part of a system of patriarchy that hurts them as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. So the the patriarchy, um, the patriarchal system, and then also we're talking about women, but then I mean, clearly the next jump would be marginalized folks or folks who like might be LGBTQ or don't fit within the maybe standard teachings of the religious doctrine. Yeah, that that is another thing that comes up often is folks really want to 
connect with their spiritual side. Like I said, my background was working in Christian ministry. Mm -hmm. I've known plenty of folks that were part of the LGBTQ plus community and really had a strong spiritual side, felt a connection with God, wanted to be involved in a church, and were being told that their quote unquote lifestyle was a choice and that they needed to be celibate, that they could never be in any type of leadership, that they weren't welcome in the church and experienced and are still experiencing some very hurtful, traumatic things within those contexts. And I've worked with folks that kind of had shut down that part of their, their brain, their body, their experience. And perhaps they started kind of questioning beliefs, maybe even leaving their faith. And then they really were exploring things that they had just kind of shut down as not even possible. You know, recognizing aspects of their identity of their or their sexuality that typically you might, you know, figure out when you're a teenager. Right. They might be 30, 40, 50, just now going through that process because they didn't have the opportunity previously. Yes. And as you were saying that, Michelle, like I just heard doors closing, door closed, door closed, door closed, right? Like the community is closed to them. Their, their sexuality and expression is closed to them. Mm-hmm. Their uh, opportunity for leadership is closed to them. Like here are those doors being slammed. Oh, so yeah. painful. And they're doors that you really want to walk through. Mm-hmm. Um, doors that you are interested in what's behind and they're being slammed in your face. Right. And, and at the heart too, is this this longing for community and connection, right? So the connection, like you said, with their higher power, their God, the community that they long for the connection. And so there's that extreme isolation and fragmentation that happens. Yes. Yeah. The, that feeling of isolation, that feeling of loss of community, that's something that I hear so often. And I think you, you may be going to touch on this later, but one of the things that I offer is that I facilitate some groups for survivors, do some support groups through an organization called Reclamation Collective. I do some therapy groups for folks that are located in North Carolina. And I think that can be such a healing aspect because it's a hard thing because so many people with religious trauma have been harmed in group settings and groups are really hard. And it can be such a healing thing to be in a space where your story and your experience is respected and other people understand, even if the details might be different. I'm always amazed at the commonalities that come out Mm. and the connections that are made. We heal in in community. We heal in connection Mm -hmm. to other humans. And it's that kinship that they've always longed for. Isn't that so much of what a spiritual community provides? Yes. Yeah. Healthy one. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I know there's folks from some of the previous groups um, that I've led, you know, folks have reached out to me a year or two years later and said, hey, just wanted to let you know that some of us from that group still get together virtually or in person or whatever the case may be. We've continued those relationships. How heartwarming for you. That's great. Yeah. Well, as you describe this um, loneliness and isolation, was was that something you experienced 
um, either in some of your your own journey, recovering from the religious trauma, and also what about in your work as a therapist with the these kinds of clients? That is definitely a part of my story with religious trauma. I think as with many people I've talked to, often folks start asking some questions and people start pulling away from them. And so you're still part of the, theoretically part of the church, part of the community. You're still showing up. um, You're still trying to engage, but you start feeling very isolated and alone. And you get the clear message that your questions are not welcome. Mm. Um, That was part of my experience. That's part of the experience I've heard from lots of folks. And I've noticed that lots of the therapists who work with religious trauma also have their own experience being a survivor of religious trauma. I think it's kind of that idea of like your specialty finds you. That you your specialty finds you. Who better? Yeah, you Who better? Some of those nuances when you have the experience. And being a therapist doesn't mean that you don't also struggle to make those connections with groups and to trust again. And Thank so, you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Let's just hear that once more, right? Being a therapist doesn't mean that you don't also struggle with those same things. Mm -hmm. And it can be really hard to feel that loneliness, to feel that disconnection. For me, like I had had the religious trauma and so it kind of felt similar to that. And also there's kind of this feeling of, well, you're a therapist, so you should have this together. Mm-hmm. There's only maybe certain places where it feels comfortable to acknowledge, like, this is hard. And here's some of the reasons this is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, about a year ago, um, I was lucky enough that I connected with a few other, about five or six other therapists who also all work with religious trauma. We all have our own experiences of religious trauma and we all were kind of like, you know, this can be really lonely and hard work and we want to figure out a way to connect with other people that are having some of the same experience and can understand, you know, as far as I'm a therapist, but I've also had this religious trauma experience and I work with folks who are survivors of religious trauma and can also understand that dynamic of groups can be hard. Right. And so we could kind of navigate that together of like, okay, this is what's coming up for me right now in this group. And I logically can tie it back to this that happened in my history, but I also need you to know that it's happening right now. Mm. Yeah. Um, And so. That's um, amazing that you created this support group for therapists who have had the experience of their own religious trauma, who work with religious trauma in in their therapy practices and are now doing this group to provide support to each other. It's like probably best friends and best colleagues all in one pool. Yeah, and I I do not want to take credit for creating it. Um, It was actually one of the other therapists that kind of threw the idea out there. And I Uh think we were all just kind of at the same place. So it was kind of a co-creation. Co-creation, but I love that, Michelle, right? Like somebody threw the idea out Mm -hmm. there like this is, you know, I I want you, the listener, to know like if you have the idea or your friend has the idea, 
throw it out there and mm-hmm. and let that magic happen because you know your story is 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 the story of so many others of us of we therapists who can be lonely and disconnected and look what you've put together to get so much support yeah it's it is really an amazing thing we meet once a week we've all got it on our calendars so mm-hmm. that you know we don't schedule other things during that time we're from all over the country wow um, you know we'll text throughout the week as far as like hey this is coming up for me like I'm dealing with this really knowing what's going on in, in each other's lives and then also we're hoping to be able to meet up in person all together soon yes um, you have to have a little retreat <laughs> right yeah it's hard to get those logistics together but it's just so nice to have folks that understand both sides, the therapist side, the survivor side. It's a really special thing. It is. And what I also hear is you're working really hard at this. You know, I think if, if you asked a bunch of other therapists, do you have a a group of trusted colleagues that you meet with once a week? The answer is probably no. Yeah. So this, this is really, really exciting that you do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it's something that would be beneficial or could be beneficial for, for other therapists, you know, not just in the religious trauma specialty right. area, but just in general of we we have a very complex and often hard job that a lot of folks who, you know, are not in the field don't understand. Hundred percent. That's so true. So, That's so true. Yeah. That's why I love doing this podcast and meeting my guests like you. And you know, bring that understanding out there. Like, let's, let's not hide under the shadow anymore. Let's talk about it, right? We have to find our own space to process the healing we need to go through as well as the healing work we're doing in our jobs as therapists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it's just nice to be able to know that you have time to talk with other therapists that get it and to be able to say, like, hey, this came up for me this week, mm-hmm. you know, um, and they understand the whole nuance of working with clients and protecting confidential information and all of that. And also that we're still human and, and stuff comes up for us, too. That's right. We sit here and we get triggered, what, whatever mm-hmm. the uh, issue is. So this kind of flows right into self-care. I mean, Clearly, support and community is an important part of it. But this is really, really challenging work. I mean, you're you're still a trauma therapist, Michelle. And how how do you how do you survive doing this work? What is yeah. what's your self care like go to? <laughs> yeah, that is that's a great question. I think for me, sometimes I struggle with self care, um, and I think in my case, part of that is a carryover from my time in ministry, when there was such an emphasis on give, 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 go, 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 do, 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 because you're doing it for, you know, you're doing it for God. So who can That's argue right. with that? That's right. And and I want to underscore that because I know other therapists who might experience this profession as a calling mm-hmm. or very like a servant's heart. Right. We can be guilty of the same thing of give, give, give. Right. Yeah. And realizing that we really can't give our best if we're not taking care of ourselves and so some things for me I've been trying to work in like 
getting a massage monthly, just because I hold a lot of tension, making sure that I have fresh foods in my diet, you know, like, cause it's really easy to grab a granola bar between sessions or something like that. But if I also have like some bananas available or I can, I can have some variety of what I grab. Exactly. Um, my, my newest one is the cut up cantaloupe in the, uh, in the, uh, produce part right. of the grocery store. I'm like, Oh, yeah. that's a pretty good one. I feel healthy if I eat that. But right. figuring you know. out ways to have different things available. Mm-hmm. Hydration. I always have water available and being like recognizing when I need to take time off. I think that especially came up with being really sick. You know, I was really, I was very sick about pretty much the whole month of February. And so I had to at first, I thought I was just like rescheduling some clients because I was like, oh, I'll feel better in a few days. And then it ended up being, okay, this is actually like a two-week thing. And then even when I come back, I'm still had some bronchitis going on and that kind of thing. And so just really recognizing like, what do I need to do to take care of myself? And that may change from day to day. So yeah. I'm trying to be aware of self-care, like that it is more, like I do think that like, massages and pedicures and all that can be part of it, but it's also making time to, you know, go to the dentist, prepare a meal, get your regular eye checkup, go for a walk. Like, spend time I'm so glad you're saying those things, right. Spend time with the people you care about. I'm so glad you're saying all of those things because it's part of our holistic health that we need to check in about. And, you know, I, I agree with you, you, you and I both were sick the month of February and, you know, it's, it's really being able to challenge that, that impulse to just rush back in, rush back into your full client schedule or to serving, you know, again, using that, that term of the giving and the serving, like that's what, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. that as a holdover from the past, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you're exactly right that lots of folks who are drawn to being a therapist whether it feels like a calling or whatever word they might use they have that desire to connect and to give Um, and sometimes it can be hard for us to know when we might need to slow down or we might need to tweak things Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit to actually be able to give the best of ourselves and you know just really having a very holistic sense about wellness and self-care is important. And that's, you know, a basic tenet of counseling that we're about prevention and wellness that sometimes isn't talked about so much because, you know, therapy gets, it gets fancy. It doesn't have to always be so fancy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is so true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, going back for a second, because I'm, I'm thinking about the religious trauma as it shows up for your clients. And when we were talking about that, I wanted to ask you what you find is really helpful working with these folks. And I know that it can be, it can go, you know, as individuated as the client itself, but you said something um, and, and I quote, some folks want to find spirituality and others want to burn it to the ground. So here we've got these extremes and, mm-hmm. you know, a random client is in your office. What what have you found with working with these people and this continuum? Yeah, one of the biggest things is creating a space where they feel safe to share their story and their experience is validated. 
and they feel safe to say, you know, are they in a place where I want to figure out a spiritual practice that fits for me, but I'm not sure what that looks like. Or are they in a place where like their anger and their rage is really strong and they're having that feeling of, I just want to burn it all to the ground. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested. Or they could be somewhere else totally. And going from there, really listening to, okay, what, what is your desire? Where are you at in this? And then supporting that, you know, asking questions, figuring out what that might look like. Sometimes that might be using some kind of motivational interviewing, you know, type things of asking those questions and figuring out like, okay, well, here, it sounds like there's some pros and cons, reasons why you would do this, reasons why you wouldn't do this. You know, sometimes that might be given some, some journaling prompts for them to think about outside mm-hmm. of session. For some folks, there is a particular part of the trauma that is just keeps showing up in their body and they just really can't get past to do any other work. So with those folks, I am level one trained in brain spotting. I'm hoping to take level two um, at some point in the near future, but I have found brain spotting can be helpful for folks who are holding on to some of that in their bodies mm-hmm. just to help their brains and bodies make that connection and, and kind of work through it. And also giving some like just somatic ways to kind of release that energy. Talking about like, okay, this sounds like how this is showing up for you and your body. What are some ways that we could incorporate, whether it's in session or out of session, to release some of that and just to allow it to to come out? Yeah, that's great. And I know you have a whole other specialty that we might talk about in in another episode around body body image Mm -hmm. concerns, but the somatic focus that you bring is, is super helpful. Yeah. And I honestly, I find that there's a lot of overlap between the body image concerns and folks who have experienced spiritual abuse um, because there can be a lot of disconnection from the body, um, whether that came from, you know, diet culture, hearing that you needed to change the shape or size of your body, um, learning to not pay attention to your hunger signals, or if that came more from like a religious aspect of trying to stay pure. Some folks might be familiar with the term purity culture, the idea from kind of the 90s, early 2000s, definitely still around, but it was really strong during that time of keeping yourself completely pure, like saving sex for marriage. All of those were, were terms within there. Then they really led to disconnection from physical purity, physical existence, pleasure for a lot of folks. So there can be some overlap there with how stuff shows up mm-hmm. in your body. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. That's that's really telling. And it, it resonates, especially when we think about those things that the, the purity culture not not being seen being you know the the patriarchy all of those things can really be influence um how we connect relate or dismiss entirely our bodies mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um do you do you ever find like clients see you almost like as a substitute uh, i 
I'm not sure what the word is, but like a substitute religious stand-in for what they had wanted in in their prior religious community, you know, and then coming to you or wanting maybe you to pray with them. And I mean, that's great if 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 that works for them. But I'm just curious, like, does that dynamic happen? I won't say that that dynamic has never happened. In my experience, not usually. Most of, at least for folks who have recognized that they've had some religious trauma or spiritual abuse, they're more on the side of being wary of any type of like leader, guru um, kind of figure. Um, So it's actually some of the opposite. Mm -hmm. Early on, especially, there can be some like pushback and challenging just to kind of see how are you going to react to this? Mm. Do I actually have freedom to say no um, and to still be accepted in this space? But I definitely could could see that happening with folks, maybe especially folks that um, hadn't really been able to process what has happened. Maybe they feel like they don't belong within their faith community, but they're still really longing for that. They haven't had a chance to really process that. And they could be looking for kind of that connection with their therapist. Um, and I know some folks seek out specifically Christian therapists, you know, because they want somebody that will pray with them. Um, but that's absolutely of, right. Of their process. Right. Right. And and that doesn't have to be trauma based. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. a, a beautiful option for clients to receive that. Um, you know, I think it's like seeking spirituality wherever you go. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was one of the most amazing things about my relationship with my therapist, mm-hmm. um, because I worked with the same therapist, both while I was working in ministry and I was very certain of my beliefs. And as I started questioning and left ministry, she did an excellent job of showing up in the way that I needed her to at the time. So there were points where that meant like, okay, I need to talk about Bible verses and I need the support of prayer. And there were points where that meant like kind of in that burn it to the ground stage. Like, (laughs) I I don't want you to tell me about any Bible verses. Don't mention prayer. And then getting to kind of exploring, like, what does spirituality mean? Talking about some of the trauma responses that I was having. And I felt like she was always willing and able to meet me where I was. Yes, I was just going to say, she really met you where you were. Mm-hmm. And and that was so what you needed. And, you know, for my listener, just knowing that this is what you can provide to your client, meet them where they are. That's number one. You can't go wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important in all working with all types of of folks, populations, concerns. But that's one of the things that I really try to bring to my work in religious trauma of, you know, ensuring that that my clients know like wherever you are is okay. Mm -hmm. You are you are welcome and wanted in the therapeutic relationship. However, you need to show up right now. And my job is to support you, not to push you in any certain direction, and that I'm honored to be able to do that in whatever way is most helpful at the time. And that might change over time. That's so beautifully said, Michelle. And I love that. You are welcome and wanted, however you show up, right? We welcome the anger, the pain, the sadness. We welcome it all. What I really find so interesting, too, about our conversation 
and what you shared with your own therapist, like as you went through kind of this spiritual evolution in working with her is that sense that we as therapists really do work with the spiritual a lot. I mean, I'm not trying to get like all woo here and take it or leave it, whatever applies to you, great. But that's a great example of your spirituality or spiritual needs or curiosity changing over time in the course of your work with your therapist. Mm -hmm. And so being able to go there with our clients. Here's the thing. This is something that I'd love for you to speak about. Um, Let me think, how do I want to word this? Okay. So what happens? What do you think? Maybe, Maybe you've experienced this, but let's say a therapist originally has some some spiritual underpinning or faith-based principles that are in their heart, right? This is part of their heart-centeredness, that they have some spiritual underpinning, let's call it that. Then they get shook up, whether it's religious trauma or dark night of the soul or something, right? And now they're on shaky grounds, shaky ground with their own spiritual belief. And then what do you do, right? Like, what do you do as the therapist in questioning where you sit spiritually in your work with clients? Mm. That is a tough question. I know. I know. It's a really big question. I grapple with it all the time because I think we go in and out. Anybody who has some some spirituality, I, I think as a matter of course, you may go in and out and that's okay. Yeah. But what do you do with it? Yeah. I think it's one of those things as a therapist, you need to be aware that of what your process is and make sure that you have somewhere that you can, you know, work through that process on your on your own. That could be like a clergy member, it could be your own therapy. That could look a lot of different ways, but making sure that you're not working through your stuff with your client. Mm-hmm. Um, Good. And, and I think that <laughs> applies to a lot of things, but in this, you know, particularly right. like. Good old counter-transference. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, making sure that you have those spaces where, okay, this is about me and I can process through and talk about like, okay, well, this is where I am right now. This is how I'm feeling about this. Um, if you have a change such that like maybe if you um, just to go with the example of spirituality, let's say maybe that you originally had been at a point where you felt comfortable praying with clients if that was someone they requested, you know, and um, but you transitioned to a point where that doesn't feel authentic to you anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to figure out how to inform clients of that. Um, in a way that gives them enough information so they know that it's not about them and they don't take on blame for it, but also doesn't give them the role of like feeling like they have to take care of you. Right. Uh, just, hey, this is a change that has come about. And so I'm not going to be offering prayer as part of our sessions anymore. Um, if this applies to you, you can say, you know, I'm happy to allow you to pray and mm-hmm. to sit here and support you in that you know, how you communicate it would probably depend on the client and where you are, what you are comfortable with. Right. That time that's authentic. Yes, that's that's a really, really thoughtful and transparent way to to 
interact with your clients for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then as you take on new clients, you know, making sure that if that's something that comes up that they want prayer and sessions, that you are upfront about, hey, that's not something I offer. And, and even then- even separate from that, like and maybe, you know, we're talking about a more generic situation where it's not about the therapist necessarily offering prayer, but just feeling like, hmm, I used to rely on feeling a certain, um, uh, I don't know, a certain a certain guidance, right, from a higher yeah. power in their work, and maybe that's changed. But like you said, your example was really pretty perfect, right? You just worked it worked it through with your own therapist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I am definitely a therapist who thinks that it is important for therapists to have therapists. Oh yes, <laughs> um, you know, we we always have stuff that's coming up. We need people that we can talk to, we need a place that can be about us, Mm -hmm. you know, because supporting other folks can bring up a lot of stuff for yourself and you need a place where, okay, I can bring all of this and it's about me for this hour. Right. Um, Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think just really being aware of what we need, right. And if that's, that's something that either we've been traumatized religiously or spiritually, or we're curious about it and we're seeking Mm -hmm. our own therapeutic support, maybe you don't go completely secular. Maybe you find somebody that can talk to you in a way that will help you explore these beliefs and issues and concerns, you know, really openly, but just like the way you do, Michelle. (laughs) I will say one thing that I think is really important And this sticks out to me because of my work with some different types of religious trauma is that if you're working with a therapist who works from a Christian perspective or from any kind of faith-based spiritual perspective, making sure that they're also a trained therapist. I've known lots of examples where folks, you know, promoted themselves as a Christian counselor. They didn't have any background or training in actual mental health counseling they may have taken like a two or three hour course about some Bible verses and that a lot of damage has been done to folks because they, they needed to work with someone who had the, the training and the knowledge as a therapist and also the Christian worldview, which those folks do exist, but they somehow ended up talking to somebody that may have shared their worldview, but wasn't trained to deal with whatever was going on with the person. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And in in some ways that could just be another one of those barriers to treatment that somebody who is stuck in the world of religious trauma may not know, right? Mm -hmm. About seeking a qualified mental health professional. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm, That's one of the biggest things that when folks ask me, they're like, I want to see a Christian counselor. I heard about XYZ place. You know, sometimes I'll look it up with them to see like, okay, does this person talk about their training and credentials and licensing? Like, are they qualified to provide mental health services and make sure that they know like, great to find someone who's a Christian counselor. You want to make sure that both parts are applicable. Right, exactly. And yeah. and we're talking about Christianity right now for sake of argument, but we could be talking about any other, you know, religion or religious practice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. As, as we get closer to wrapping up, Michelle, I, I want to also ask you 
a little bit about your advice to other therapists because you've you've come up through the world of community mental health and you've created a very successful self-pay private practice. Now you're running groups, you're offering a lot of other things. You do blogging and you post about mental health on Instagram. So, you know, based on your passion and your experience, you've really created a successful practice and that's amazing. What what are some best tips or advice that you would share with other therapists to help them thrive in this work? I think if you're in private practice, you have a lot more freedom in making choices about, you know, when you work, who you work with. I think that my time in in working with community mental health really was good training ground to mm-hmm. have exposure to a lot of different populations, a lot of different presenting concerns to get a feel for, I work well with this. I don't work so well with this. And so when I went into private practice on my own, I was really aware of like what hours work best for me um, as far as just my own biological rhythm, yes, um, so as well as, as scheduling the household. And that's going to look different for different folks. You know, mm-hmm. if you are a night owl that doesn't have kids or any other evening commitments that might look what you choose to schedule probably is going to look different than if you, you know, are a parent of young children. Right. And so that was a big piece was making sure like, you know, my schedule needs to fit me first mm-hmm. and then for the right clients, it's going to fit them. You know, it worked for me that I do offer a few weekend appointments on Sundays. I find that some folks who have experienced religious trauma, that works really well for them because they're looking for something on Sundays, but they don't want to be in a Mm. typical, you know, church or religious service. That's so interesting. And that works for my household schedule. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also being aware of what you can handle well, as far as, you know, how many clients in a row do you need a break between sessions? Do you, you know, like, is there a certain amount of this concern that you can work with in a day? That kind of thing. And so I kept all that in mind. Like, I personally have at least a 15 minute break between all of my sessions. Good for you. To move around, you know, get water, snacks, take care of all those things. Often I'll get my note done in that that Mm -hmm. time so I don't have it hanging over me. I can pay attention to my schedule as far as like, hey, maybe if I'm working with two people in a day that have some pretty heavy trauma processing going on, okay, I'm going to be aware of that as I'm scheduling other folks on my day. I am a big proponent of that. I Mm -hmm. teach my interns, especially like, beware, who are you scheduling back to back? You've got to protect your energy and figure out, you know, what your capacity is going to be. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and I think not comparing around capacity, because for some folks, they feel like that they can see 30, 35 clients a week and that they, that's fine for them. That's a sweet spot. That's right. They don't feel behind. They don't feel drained. You know, other folks, it may be 10 or 15 mm-hmm. or even less. And that's like, right. That's the sweet spot. And that's where they know I can give my best to clients. We have so many gems in this episode, not comparing your capacity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and your capacity changes throughout life too. 
Oh, very true. <laughs> We're both experiencing that. <laughs> yes, yeah. You yeah. know, so depending on what you have going on, whether it's something hopefully more short term, like the sicknesses we were dealing with, or something that might be more long term, like, yes, you know, what you can do at one point might look different than what is feasible at another point. That's right. I, I recently um, posted self care question in my Facebook group, anybody who's interested would love to have you join the heart centered therapist community on Facebook. And one of the members posted how important pacing was for her. And I said, Oh, my goodness, Mm -hmm. me too. Pacing right now is more important than ever. And again, it just depends in what period of your life you're in, but we need to stay aware of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And being willing to flex if you realize something's not working. Yeah. So you have just really shared some great, great tips about being in charge of managing and setting up your private practice in a way that's going to work for you. And by default, then it will work for the right clients Mm -hmm. that you're meant to serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know some folks are in positions where they don't have that much control, but, you know, there may be an option to talk to group practice owner or supervisor or whatever and advocate for, for what might be helpful for you so that you can be able to serve clients long-term in the role that fits you best. Yes. Right. You really help people advocate across the board. (laughs) Well, it's so, I mean, it's so important. It's important to advocate for ourselves, important to advocate for others, particularly Mm -hmm. if we happen to be um, in a position of power in some way that they are not. Absolutely. And, and so it's really, it's very clear how your experiences and also passion for this work has impacted your approach to therapy and to life. Like it's, it's, it's all connected, you know, being a therapist sometimes is also a way of life that if we embrace it that way, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Michelle, I just, I really want to thank you for spending time talking about this super important and less well-known topic of religious trauma and, spiritual wounds and and also just about being a heart-centered therapist. I mean, you you really you really emulate that in your work and I'm so grateful we had this chance to meet each other and to talk about it. And thank you for just being there for your clients for meeting them where they're at and, you know, and also supporting the other therapists who are doing this work. I love how you've created community and that's huge. I see your smile. I wish I wish my <laughs> listener could see your smile too, because that's so important. So get support therapists out there. Tell everyone how they can find you. Sure. I am pretty active on Instagram, share tidbits about mental health um, and particularly things that are related to body image and religious trauma. And my username on there is at therapy underscore with underscore Michelle. That's Michelle with two L's. And then my website has more information about me and my specialties and different groups and seminars that I'm offering. And that is michellefmosley.com. So that's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-F-M-O-S-E-L-E-Y.com. So I would love for 
people, if they're interested, come check it out, read some blogs. Um, yes. Get in touch with me if you have any questions or if you're in North Carolina and looking for a therapist, I'd be happy to, to chat with you and see if we're a good fit or connect you with somebody who is. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's great. Michelle's website is, is excellent. And again, there's, there's a lot of great information there. And if you're a therapist doing this work, also feel free to contact Michelle because of this, um, this group she's forming and her expertise. And I think um, that, that could be really, really a, a great connection for you. Yeah, I'm happy to um, chat with any therapist, you know, consultations around religious trauma, or if there's any therapist, um, I'm licensed in North Carolina. So if there's any therapists that are you know, maybe resonating with some of this and are like, uh, I might want to talk with a therapist myself about this. I do work with a lot of therapists as clients. So happy to offer that as well. That's great. That's great. We're, we so need that. Well, this has been so fun. I am again, super thankful. And um, I hope that we'll get to talk more in the future. In the meantime, enjoy beautiful spring in North Carolina. And I look forward to uh, connecting again. Thank you so much um, having me on and letting us have this chat. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I invite you to subscribe and leave a rating or review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the links and resources mentioned. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.